TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Before we get started with this episode of The Permanent Record, we've got a special surprise. It's an advertisement. I know what you're thinking. Does The Permanent Record really have that many listeners? And the answer is, apparently. Uh, that's why, I guess, uh, Studio has asked us to talk about their headphones. You know how you used to have to choose between criminal justice reform or style? And now Just City brings you both? Well, Studio does that for headphones. These things are really sharp and they sound even better. Uh, I got a pair of the sweat-proof trays for the rare occasion when I work out. In the OAM Network podcast studios at Crosstown, we use the over-ear Regent model. This is the first time I've had them on, and they're great. They have high-polished metal and matte surfaces. You can even come look at them through the studio window in the central atrium at Crosstown Concourse if you want to. You can see just what I mean. Design and functionality, as they say, all at once. We could use a little bit of that in the criminal justice system. If you want some of your very own, check out the entire line at studio.com. That's S-U-D-I-O.com. Enter the discount code PERMANENT at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your order. Free worldwide shipping. I'm pretty sure you get a free tote bag with every order. In a just city, all podcasts sound great, and we look good while we're listening. Visit studio.com. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee, and The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together, make it work better for everyone. Luther Ivory was at Mason Temple in Memphis on the evening of April 3rd, 1968, but he was not there for the same reason as hundreds of others gathered to hear what would be Dr. Martin Luther King's final speech before the tragedy of April 4th. Ivory would later write that he, quote, was never the same after that night. Today, Lou, or the I-Man, as his students call him at Rhodes College, is quasi-retired from that school as an associate professor of religious studies and the director of African-American studies. Lou has also pastored several churches in Memphis. He has a unique perspective on what it's like to grow up in Memphis in the civil rights era. And we talked to him about that, about what faith in action looks like, and why he was at Mason Temple that night, more than 50 years ago. Well, Luther Ivory, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Appreciate the invitation. Uh, let's, let's get right to it. Tell us about the evening of April 3rd, 1968. Who were you then, and uh, how did you find your way to Mason Temple? I was cool hand loop then, <laughs> 15 years old, a member of a local gang, the Bungalow Braves. And we knew, having come up with the church culture in Memphis, uh, Braves knew that uh, that uh, when there was a big event, it was going to be church-centered. And we knew that the women were going to put their purses in the back, uh, the trunks of cars. Dr. King was here, so uh, we knew it was going to be a big event. We were going to go down there and kind of, but we had a well-oiled kind of theft machine. We were wow. going to rob the, the trunks of those cars, get the women's purses, leave everything but the money. And that night, uh, a host of us, man, it was 11 of us, we went down to rob those cars, but it started raining torrentially. Uh, straight line winds and uh, rains drove us to the narthex of Mason Temple, and there, uh, soaking wet, uh, we start to... I heard a lot of noise. I was familiar with the cadence and rhythms of the black church, 
but they were hollering about King. Finally, Martin King comes in, very diminutive from the left side, crosses over, and starts speaking extemporaneously. No notes. And I was transfixed. And my view of preachers and pastors then was very negative. Mm-hmm. Very nice. I thought did, you, would, did you go to church normally? I did. Yeah. I did. Well, mom, and it was it was like axiomatic in the South. You go into You're church. Forced, That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Now, I hung out on Fridays and Saturdays. And I was a Saturday night man, but you're going to be a Sunday morning person right. in church. So, I'm familiar. Yeah. And so uh, we went in there, and uh, extemporaneously, I thought uh, preachers were dressed up crooks and gangsters. I didn't have <laughs> any type of any positive uh, view of them at all. But this man started quoting Ovid and Shakespeare, James Russell Lowell. I was going, this is not an average preacher like I hear. And I got a glimpse of the learned minister, um, the minister. And he's, he's also was speaking about social issues, uh, which I hadn't really heard that connection before. I, I later on found out why that was. And, and once we left uh, the Braves, I started reading as, as much as I could about him. And that was, my, that was transformative for me in the fact that I got to see King. I didn't see all of his, quote, mountaintop speech. I saw some of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's put me on the path to sort of started to sort of say, I, I got to do something better. This, this is nonsense yeah. that I'm doing. So you went to the church because there were lots of people there yeah. with a strategy yeah. to commit crime yeah. Yeah. and ended up being driven inside by the rain and yeah. listening to this speech that we're all, or parts of the speech that we're all familiar with. Yes. Yes. Um, Yes. And did did you do any? You, I think the statute of limitations has run. You can tell us. Did you uh, do any robbing that night? Yes, we did. You did. So you left. That's right, Josh. We did. We left. We got. We had gotten. I said we we had robbed maybe about nineteen or twenty cars. Wow. And uh, by that time, and we we were always successful. And uh, I had very strong hands, and and uh, my fingers are very thin, but they're very strong. And I had a certain. Tactic that I would use, which I would use. Ah, you go. Right. There you go. Yeah. Wow. And we, we had gotten about 19 of them, but it was so raining so hard. I think I was about 122 pounds. And uh, the person in the group named Ghost, he was 119. He was the only person that I weighed in the group. <laughs> and everybody was huge. And so we were, we really couldn't stand. So we, Ghost and I really had to go into the narthex. It was, rain was whipping us out, wind wow. whipping us around. And I want to talk more in a minute about, about where you went after after that night and, and after leaving that gang, you already referenced that. But, but talk to us even for before you ended up um, doing that that night. I mean, you talked about you know, doing this in the past, knowing where people were going to be. Uh, what was life like for a 15-year-old African-American boy in mm-hmm. Memphis in 1968? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how is it the same or different from a, how you perceive it for 15-year-old boys today? Yeah, that's, a, that's a very uh, perceptive question, Josh. Life for me, I remember, was uh, one word I would use was suffocating. Oh. It was a suffocating experience in Memphis. First of all, Memphis was racially segregated. Secondly, uh, blacks live in substandard houses. I remember the house we lived. Uh, we lived on 1607 Sydney Street in North Memphis, uh, and uh, we were victimized by slumlords. We lived in what's called a shotgun house, and uh, we did not have any running hot water. We had a toilet in the back of the house. Later on in 63 was when we finally got a toilet in the house. I, re- I remember just like yesterday. We had an outhouse in the wow. back of the house. So when you say in the back of the house, you mean outside? Outside in the back of the house. Oh, wow. Yeah, so then that's where we strategized and planned. The <laughs> braids were, you know, didn't smell too good, but we strategy place we were out there. 
And I really didn't believe or I didn't have a concept in myself, of myself that I could really rise above that, uh, that context. So you didn't see opportunity for I yourself? I did not. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's despite the marvelous teachers I had at Douglas Elementary and Douglas High. Josh, these were, these were marvelous people. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, Miss Brady, Miss Rowe, Miss Johnson, uh, people, uh, Alfred Modlow. And were uh, teachers integrated teachers, at that point? No, no, they weren't. They, that wasn't an integration effort with the teachers until what we had called Black Mondays that came in the 70s, 69 oh, wow. and 70s. I mean, it started in 68, but there was a phenomenon called Black Mondays. And the school board was all white. E.C. Stembert was the school board mm-hmm. president. I remember clearly it was just all white and male. There weren't any women, right. women involved. And, man, it was, it was like black people, who are they? I mean, I, I just felt suffocated. I really didn't feel the value of black life, even though I was a black man. This, this is the per, pernicious, pervasive effects of uh, white supremacy ideology. It, it leads you subtly to feel like you don't count and you shouldn't count. Even as a 15-year-old. Even as 15 years old. What saved me was the teachers and the black church. The teachers at Douglas uh, High, they, they felt this. They felt I could read. I, I stuttered a lot. I was a stutterer. And they worked with me with my stuttering. Uh, I came from, uh, I was a ward of the court for much of my younger years, bounced around from uh, foster homes. And when I finally got, my mom finally got, got me back, uh, then the teachers began to work with my stutterer. And they told me, they saw me books. Now, Josh, I have to tell you this. I got real sick three years in a row at Douglas Elementary. And that was a gift. It was a curse, but it was a gift. All I could do the summers is watch my brothers and sisters play, but I had a lot of books. They would bring me books from what's called the bookmobile. And Josh, I'd start reading. And my teachers began to take that and say, you're a reader. Read this, read that. And they began to push me that I could could, uh, read. Ethel Tarpley was, I remember her, she pushed me, you can go to college. Come on now, I can't go to no, come on now. No black people in college. And it was my teachers. And then it was N.A. Crawford at uh, First Baptist Mount Olive Church. And it was Reverend Ferguson at St. Paul Church. In their own way, yeah. they kind of let me know that we were expecting better of you, Luther. What do you see then for a 15-year-old boy today, 2018, uh, um, 50 I, years later? My grandson is 15. Mm-hmm. And I have, I would say, there's a phrase in the South we say is, I have my foot on his neck. <laughs> which means I'm a, I'm a shadow because I understand uh, now that the culture has shifted, but it hasn't shifted that much in certain ways. My grandson is actually more vulnerable to gang activity than I was at 15. Mm-hmm. What do you see about opportunity for him and, and what, what gives him opportunity as compared to you? I think he has uh, there are a lot of more avenues that have opened up. Memphis isn't defined. The de jure segregated like it was then is still de facto segregated. But my grandson is a technological whiz. I mean, I never knew what a cell phone. That wasn't even the vernacular. We had computer <laughs> PC. He has an opportunity to access the technology. Uh, he has an access now to have a, uh, there are scholarships for him that he can do things far beyond what I was. So then he has me and his grandmother and his father. He has others to say, well, we've done it, too. We have a lot more educated black, blacks. We have a lot more formally educated black people with degrees, advanced degrees. He can see more black people on TV than I could see. He sees more black entertainers and sports figures that people look up to, black, white, blue, green, yellow. So I think that inside his head, 
the images of what he can be and aspire to are different from where I was. Yeah. Opportunity is, is much more visible for yes, a black person that's well, today. Put, well said, Josh. Yeah. Yes. I, this, is not a, this is not a question that I plan to ask or share with you, but um, I suspect that maybe you can add some insight into what it meant for your grandson and for you to see an African-American president. Yeah. What was that like? It was, first of all, I argued vociferously that America would never elect a black you didn't president. Believe. I argued it that and I argued it even I during the campaign. The, during the campaign and before, <laughs> I brought all powers of debate to bear. And everyone <laughs> I'll tell it, it will never happen in America. And you talking about eating crow, robin, dove. I had to eat all those <laughs> all birds. birds. <laughs> and my family was livid. And I could see uh the women and the old men begin to weep. Hmm. And I could see Josh, this is, what, this is what made me weep. Not that they were weeping, but that I participated unknowingly in crushing some of their dreams. I didn't realize I had done that. I said, I still got a lot of growing up to do. Wow. But lo and behold, that he became president and just, just he, uh, Barack Obama could just show up. He wouldn't have to say nothing. And right. look, it just, everybody got it. We just got it. So that was so important. My son, my grandson, um, is a, he's an epileptic. He's on the autism spectral, uh, spectrum, and he's developmentally delayed. But he knows there are three black men that he knows, four. He knows Martin Luther King Jr. when he sees him. He knows Barack Obama, mm-hmm. Steph Curry, <laughs> and LeBron James. Of course, Everybody of course knows LeBron James. Yeah, knows We him. need a new podcast, a different podcast for that conversation. <laughs> yes, we do. Because I got some opinions about, about two of those people. <laughs> I got you. In particular, yeah. as, a, as a Grizzlies fan. Um, well, I suspect that you got caught a few times yeah. uh, in, yes, your, in your days with the gang. Yes, um, I did. Probably because your headquarters was an outhouse. You, you, you made some mistakes. Do you have an experience with the criminal justice system that you're comfortable sharing with us as a, as a kid, as a teenager? Yeah, and I will share aspects of it. I got caught once in Memphis, and uh, that one in Memphis was uh, a theft at a pinball arcade, and uh, it was a group of us went in there and robbed it. What we didn't realize was the person was sawing us and had already alerted the police. When we came out, we had the goods. They let us come out. We had the goods. That was a horrible. I realized then that crime and criminality doesn't affect the person that's caught. It affects people in that person's life who has been caught. I understood now how it did unravels in spider-like web-like fashion. How do you? How did you? Did you understand that then? No, I did not. How, how do you understand that now? I understand now that is the choices that I make are not just uh, limited to what happens to me. So I saw that when I got caught up and I went to jail, my mom also went to jail in a sense. My mom went mm-hmm. down. My mom didn't have any money. My mom was a, she was a maid in uh, Southern Homes and a short order cook. My mom was working two jobs a day. My father is third, third, third grade uh, illiterate, functioning illiterate. Mm-hmm. He was working all week and even weekends. And here I am in there acting crazy right. and silly. And uh, it just affected them. My brothers and sisters affected them. They had to get money to bail me out, which my sisters would need shoes and my brothers would need uh, toothbrushes. I didn't own my own toothbrush. I shared one with three of my brothers until I actually got to 71, until I got to college. Toothbrush. Toothbrush. I shared a toothbrush with with two of my brothers. So So 
I didn't understand the impact of that decision right. on my family. Right. And one of the one of the really promising things uh, that we, we see in, in, in criminal justice reform is this idea of restorative justice that that attempts to to show that yes. uh, to if particularly children who, who run afoul of the law about the impact that it has. And I mean, I see it as an attorney, you know, mm-hmm. mom and dad have to come to court. Mom and dad have to uh, get you to appointments. Mom and dad, you know, yes. it's, it, it impacts so many more people, not to mention the victim, uh, you know, the property owner yes. that you, you victimized. Yes. Uh, interesting. Um, but at the time uh, that was not. No. Some, so you heard the this parts of the mountaintop speech mm-hmm. you had this this experience uh, with criminal justice you had teachers who who cared about you a lot you read a lot mm-hmm. you ended up uh with opportunity yeah. and, and and doing something with all of those things uh, quickly tell us you know where you went after after high school and and what happened okay to Luther I, Ivory? I thought i would uh just kind of hang around as a coca-cola plant in memphis on southern and uh, it was over by the stadium, and I thought I worked. Still is, right? Still is, yeah. still is. That. I thought right. I worked there for a while, and then I worked for Harlem House of Memphis for a while. They were just now defunct. Ethel Tarpley, who's the um, guidance counselor for, for Douglas High School, insisted that I give at least one year to college. And she hounded my mom and dad and <laughs> hounded me. That woman was at my house almost every day. Finally, uh, I relented, went to UT Knoxville, but I got in trouble, Josh. Mm. I got in trouble again, Had to, went to a local jail again, was able to come out. Then I made a deal with the, with the administration of the, of the college and also with law enforcement that I would get in the military. Oh. So I did ROT, college ROTC, and from there I was trained in uh, tanks, and then from there I went from the Army to the Navy, and began to uh, be in the neonatal intensive care. And from there, in Newport, Rhode Island, they sent me from neonatal intensive care to a, a line officer with uh, missiles. And uh, I got on, went on a Spruance destroyer, got assigned to a Spruance class destroyer, USS Thorn, down in Pascagoula, Mississippi. From mm-hmm. there, I left there, I got hurt, came up here to Millington, and that is when I began my exit out of the, uh, the right. Navy into the ministry. And settled back into the community where you grew up. Yes. Well, um, and uh, how, how, the, how did it come about that you went into the ministry? I, uh, that was a, a chaplain named Thomas McFadder. Uh, he's in, from California. In the Navy? In the Navy. Mm-hmm. And he, he was the first black chaplain I'd ever seen. He was stationed at uh, Millington. And I was in Millington. Uh, I was a lieutenant. And he just decided, he, he, we got to talk, and he says, you have some potential. And so I'm looking around, yeah, I'm about 20, <laughs> 30 years old, what do you mean? And he, McFadder, Thomas McFadder, guided me. He was a Presbyterian, didn't even know what that was. And he started taking me to church with him, and I began to sense this call into the ministry with McFadder's guidance. And from there, I ended up uh, with another couple that were out in Farmington area, uh, Ron and Pat Lovelace. And they took me, and they heard me, they heard me speak one day, and they took me and said, uh, you need to go to seminary. They called up to UT, uh, 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 the seminary, Richmond, in Richmond, Virginia, UTS, and they got me a scholarship to go there. And from there, I went there, came back, and then went to Emory, the graduate studies, and then back into uh uh, Virginia to teach, and then back here to grow churches. You taught at Union? Uh-huh, yeah. sure did. I taught and, that for three years. Um, so you're obviously a person of, of, of great faith. Um, uh, what, 
you know, you've been in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, what, a, where did, did your faith really blossom? And, and is there a, was there an experience that you were having, whether it's the military? Um, just tell us a little bit about what, how your faith defined you and how it, it, it guides you through life, how it guides you to be a grandfather, a professor, a, yeah. a, a pastor. I, uh, I think I was really kind of going through the, uh, I would say, the career path of a minister until 1985. I got assigned to a church in Washington, D.C., a pastor named Roxana Atwood. Roxana Atwood grew up in North Virginia, lived in Northern Virginia. It was there, Josh, that I was living in an area of uh, Washington called Anacostia. Mm-hmm. Prime member, low income, low area, predominantly black. Near the Naval Yard, right? Yes. Yeah. And so what happened is uh, there was an issue with tainted meat at the local store. And I got involved as a, as a church pastor, a co-pastor, into that protest. And that's when my faith started blossoming. I began to see the connection between social responsibility and the gospel. So I think that it blossomed. I was, I was a father then. My, my children were very small, uh, five, and I think six and two. And so it got me to see that connection. And from 85, I began to uh, see that connection and then to read about and hang around with people that could help me with it. Um, that is not the answer I expected. That is, <laughs> that is um, but it, it leaves me with a lot more questions um, because um, – I think, this is Josh Spickler's opinion, that what is missing from a lot of people's faith and from a lot of uh, communities of believers' uh, practice is that call mm-hmm. that you uh, answered with the tainted meat. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, you're nodding your head, so I yeah. wonder if you could maybe talk a little more uh, about why you think that's missing from mm-hmm. people of faith, and in particular with the criminal justice system. I, I have a question here about you know your ex, an experience you, you had with the criminal justice system, maybe as a pastor, which mm-hmm. I'm sure if you're yeah. pastoring churches in oh, Memphis, yeah. you did. Oh, yeah. And and what role you see people of faith having in in reforming a system that at least from Justice's perspective is is pretty unfair. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think what happens is, uh, uh, Josh. And uh, part of it, this is not the panacea answer, but a big part of it is the, the fact that the connectionality between faith and everyday life is somehow axed and truncated. Mm-hmm. In American culture, um, I'm thinking about how we're all vamped every day into thinking that this is about rugged and ragged individualism. It's about I give me a job, I get me a career path, I make my money, I build my house. And uh, that's a me, piece. I, me, that's I, it. That's right, it. I right. think that is insidious. And I think until that egg is cracked and we take a serious look at how even our faith life, our churches help us with that uh, to crack that up and see the relationship between the I and the me and the we and the us. And that is what faith that's lived faith, organic spirituality that I that I call it. That's what happens. The call cannot be separate apart from what my service and responsibility to the community is. Once I get that, then move on over, I'll move on over you, as Fannie Lou Hamer says. But I, I didn't really get that. I had read about it, but I didn't get it till 85. Um, as a pastor, um, give us an example of, of trying to do that after 1985, understanding how it has to be we and us. Yes. 
Um, do you have an example of a, of a group of believers that you pastored that, that did this in a, in a good way? Yeah, uh, we, uh, Lorenzo uh, Burks, I, I have a uh, chapter in a book that I wrote called Rhythm of Discipleship. Lorenzo Burke comes in and we're arguing about uh, the homeless people. What we're going to do about the homeless people on the streets. And so what we were trying to do is get committees, committed to do this and committed to do that. The church way. Lorenzo Burke stood up and he took a collection plate and slammed it right down on the pew. And he said, you know, not choice word, BRQPW, I joined this church to have a faith experience. I didn't join this church just to be an usher. And he stopped us. He said, I thought y'all were interested in doing some real ministry. Man, uh, Sylvia Steele heard him. She said, come on, Lorenzo. She said, now, Pastor Lou, I don't know what you're going to do. You help them figure out what they're going to do because you're the pastor here. I'm going to Sears. Went to Sears. Bought some big pots, her and Lorenzo, cooked some big stew, start putting in a van, and start feeding people. Okay. Woo, 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 woo. They get arrested because they don't have a license. You can't just feed people. Who do they call? The pastor. <laughs> but that's right. that's right. I'm down They're there with people. them. Yes, I'm down there with them. Still got my clergy call on. This is a Sunday, and I'm going, yep. And so Sylvia <laughs> still says, well, are you going to jail with us? And I said, well, <laughs> I, I guess I am. And so I clammed right in there with them because they said, well, if you if you all don't get off of it, everybody here on the street going to jail. And Sylvia still looks at me and said, are you going to jail with us? I said, well, I guess I am. We clammed into it and we all went to, we got arrested. We came back and the session was livid. Y'all are jail, you talking the church down. You got a bad, giving the church a bad rep. And then I remembered King. We're standing up for the best in the Christian faith and the best in American democracy. And what better way? I'd rather be a jailbird for justice than to not go to jail for, uh, it was coming off my head, for participating with injustice. And that's, people in the pew began to see, that man, that man went to jail. They went to jail. And so it began to help us. Uh, Lorenzo Burke said, well, I'll be the polit- political action ministry. Mm-hmm. I like the word that we got one for the first time. And his job was to bring people in to help us see what the relevancy of our faith was. We had politicians come in. We had educators come in. We had people working with incarcerated people. We had prison ministries. And for the first time, we had gotten involved, really involved in a way that we should have been involved, but we were peripheral, and that's a sin. That's, a, that's what a sin, a sin is, being peripheral when you should be sent at center. Wow. Um, that's incredibly powerful. Um, Here's a here's a, a question that we could talk about for for twenty thirty minutes by itself. What role uh, does redemption and mercy play in a criminal justice system? It's a question I like to ask a lot of people, but I think you're p- particularly situated to speak to it. What role does redemption and mercy play? Because you, you know, so many people, uh, especially today, see it as, as only punishment, as only accountability to people exactly. who would who would harm us, and, exactly. and that is a role and a function mm-hmm. of it. But exactly. I. I think also in a, in a country like this, in a community like this, in a community with people like you're describing and a person like yourself, that redemption and mercy has a role. What, what do you see yes. as, as that role and how do we integrate it into the system that we have? Yeah, I think redemption and mercy really is the absolute value and uh, that the retributive piece is the penultimate. It, it's part of the penultimate process. But if you look towards the ultimate value, it's about restoring and redeeming loss and broken humanity, which we all are in some sense. I mean, I got caught and went to jail for stealing, 
but I didn't uh, rip people off of millions of dollars in a hedge fund. I mean, but they're all <laughs> there because I don't know anything about it. But I think uh, the, the Christian faith has this marvelous, I think, uh, resource is that is this, is that if you really, we, if we really believe in the pow- transformative power of the gospel uh, as a pastor, then that trumps any moments where we are on to human, and many sometimes we act subhuman. If the effort is to restore, I, I would say it this way, uh, the way King said, the heart of God is about transformative love. God is always reaching out to us to bring us back to a proper sense of ourselves and in alignment with the values we know of love, justice, and peace. If that's the part, if you believe people are disposable, if you believe that people cannot change, then if you believe that people are anti-human or subhuman, then you lean more toward the retributive aspect. If you lean, if you believe people are definitely agents of transformation, can be transformed, we, as long as people are alive, we can change, then you'll lean more toward restorative, even though there may be a atonement issue, I said atonement process, in the process of going. I know I had to go back and pay back that uh, arcade that we stole from. That was part. I needed to do that, not only for them, but for me as well. But now I was allowed to get out. I was allowed to become a naval officer. I was allowed to to vote. Without somebody restoring me, I'm I'm a jailbird, and I shouldn't even vote. I'm a jailbird. I shouldn't teach your children. But I'm a living example that the people can change, and then not only change, but we can be a part of the citizenship, and we can we can help make uh, some strides towards giving ourselves, making ourselves more human and humane. Wow, I um, I regret that I did not get to sit under you at Rhodes College as Professor Luther Ivory. I regret that I have not been a member of a church pastored by Luther Ivory. But I, I'm so uh, humbled and, and honored that you joined us today to share some of your thoughts. Uh, you're a Memphis treasure. So yeah. oh, thanks thank for you, Josh. thanks for joining us. I appreciate the work you're doing, and let me say I encourage you and your staff to continue the work you're doing. There are many of us out here who are trying to do in our own ways. Now I know about Just City, and I can get involved. I have no excuse now. That's right. I've met the principal people, That's and right. you better believe you'll see me trying to get involved in the issues of criminal justice and prison reform and that sort of sort, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. That was our new friend Luther Ivory in conversation and on the permanent record. Thanks to Lou for joining us. His is an incredible Memphis experience. We hope you enjoyed this small sample of his wisdom and warmth. Look him up online. He has several interviews and a 2013 op-ed in the Christian Science Monitor that you should check out. We'll link it in the description of the episode. Special thanks to my colleague Katie Raines for booking Lou on the podcast. She heard his story recently and thought he would be a great guest. I think she was right. She usually is. As always, thanks to Gil and Carla Worth at the OAM Network for their support of The Permanent Record and the podcasting community in Memphis. You can check out uh, The Permanent Record and some of their other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Thanks to Jeff Hewlett for the theme music for The Permanent Record. It's She Got Gone. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about us and our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity 901 Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record. Give us a rating. We need a bigger audience, and that helps us build it. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. Hey, just a quick reminder, the OAM Network and The Permanent Record are powered in part by Studio Headphones. They're on my ears right now, and you can have them on your ears too if you have a few bucks. 
We use the Regent model in Studio, but Studio also offers the tray for when you're sweating and moving around, and they have the Niva for pretending you're a Secret Service agent. They pop right in your ears, and no one can tell you're listening to your favorite criminal justice podcast because they don't have wires. Check out the entire line at studio.com. That's S-U-D-I-O.com. Use discount code PERMANENT at checkout for a 15% discount, courtesy of your friends at the OAM Network. Studio. It's the sound of justice. I totally made that up, but I hope Gil keeps it in.